Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and on this podcast I'm very pleased to welcome Sherry Irwin. Uh, Sherry runs uh, Technology Asset Management Inc or TAM Inc. And uh, I'm not sure if it's polite to call you a veteran. Is, is veteran a polite way of describing your background, Sherry? You've been in the field for a very long time. I'm perfectly okay with that. Thank you. Um, and I remember you being uh, around blogging and on LinkedIn and, um, and sharing your expertise um, from the very outset of doing the ITAM review. Could you, um, could you give an introduction to yourself in your background? Sure. Well, first of all, um, I have been somewhat of a pioneer, a veteran in ITAM, particularly SAM. And that started um, early to mid-80s, at which time I was hired by a major retailer here in Canada to head up their software planning uh, department. Unfortunately, the company was not doing well. And within a very short period of time, uh, the focus changed from planning for new software to understanding what we had and looking for opportunities to reduce cost, which is, you know, a major driver for SAM. So at that point, I did, you know, the the basic SAM things, compiled an inventory, uh, looked at the contracts to understand what our commitments were, etc. And over a five-year period, um, had great success uh, in putting in place a SAM program and department with four people as well as a paralegal. So we were very involved in uh, contracting as well as basic um, asset tracking, uh, managing the inventory and so forth. And we had great successes. We saved um, the organization a great deal of money uh, in that time frame and beyond because of some of the contract protections that we put in. And it wasn't only about the money, it was about the flexibility in terms of how we architected the uh, environment and, and operated it. Do you remember what the um, business case was for, for that was? You come from one to four people with a paralegal. How did that work? You know, it wasn't a formalized business case, as I recall. We certainly, with our initial efforts, identified a lot of cost savings and cost avoidance. And that was the objective, again, because the company was not doing well. Uh, And really, I think that was the business case, although it was never formalized or written up as such. We just, we were on a roll and we kept going and our credibility um, uh, rose and um, to the point where as the function matured, Initially, there'd been some resistance because individual department managers had had control of their software portfolios in their areas. So there was some resistance. Um, But by the time I left after about five years, we had people coming to us, recognizing the value that we were providing, um, particularly but not only in contract negotiations uh, and viewing us as a valued service. So how did you, sorry if you've already mentioned this, how did you get into that first role in the first place? That's an interesting question. I don't have a good answer for you because um, my first job actually was in IT security. Right. 
with Shell Oil here in Canada. And then I went to this retailer uh, to do software planning. And I, I really can't give you a good reason for that jump, that change. But it's interesting, just as an aside, um, how ITAM and IT security have somewhat uh, started to intersect in the last uh, 18 to 24 months, as they rightly should. Um, and it, for me, it's kind of, in some ways, full circle. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, for me, a lot of it is related to the headlines of the companies that have suffered major breaches. Yes. And you can put it down to, well, hang on, if you had good inventory, you, I'm not saying that you would have solved that, but you would have been in a lot better position to identify and, and rectify it. Um, but, but. Most definitely. And, and we may talk more about this as we, as we go on, but um, there is a difference between asset tracking and asset management, and that's sometimes difficult for people to understand. And in support of IT security, for the most part, we're talking about IT asset tracking. Right. And one, one of the, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but one of the skills as well of an asset manager, I think, is the ability to triangulate and say, okay, I've got this data, that data, that data. And therefore, yes. using those three data points, I can, I, I might have incomplete data, but at least I better identify that security threat based on the three different data sets, for example, or something like that. So back to your, your question, uh, when I left um, that retailer, I went to Gartner Group Canada as a management consultant, not in ITAM. ITAM was still, really it didn't exist as a, as a, a dis discipline at that point in time. Um, so I was a management consultant doing, you know, IT uh, strategic planning, architecture, that sort of thing. But I, I really, my heart was in what I had done at uh, the retailer and uh, so I went out on my own in 95 to focus exclusively on IT asset management, at which time it, it had started to, um, there was some awareness in the industry. And um, I also, in the early first three years or so of my business, uh, not only did I do the management consulting, building that practice, but also was a reseller for uh, uh, several ITAM, early ITAM products. I got out of that after about three years. I really wanted to focus exclusively on the management consulting. What were the products, just out of interest? Yes, um, the Janus product. Uh, so you know Larry Schaup. Yep. Um, so uh, Argus, which is a product from Janus Technologies. Larry and I connected very early on after I started my company in 95, and we just hit it off. And it turns out the product Argus, which is an asset, IT asset repository, uh, was based in part on an article, a series of uh, articles that I had written on vendor management. So it was, it was kind of, um, I don't know the words, but when we connected, we really did make a connection. Also, uh, Tangram's product. We were also a reseller for Tally Systems. Right, and I there's, there's a blast was, from the past. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think there was another one. I just don't recall what it was. And also, for a number of years, we were the Canadian uh, representative for DSI Technology Escrow Services. Uh, and again, I got out of that after three or four years. But that's an interesting line of business. I, I really enjoyed that and came to appreciate the value of escrow in general, but also as a niche component of your SAM program. 
And could you, for those not familiar with that whole concept, can you describe that briefly? What, what, what's the benefit of doing that? Sure. Well, with software, um, in most cases, we don't get the source code, the human readable version of the code. We get a machine code that's been compiled, also called object code. So if the uh, publisher can't or won't support the software, the customer then is in a situation of risk. Uh, the software may not continue to operate, they're not going to get functional enhancements, etc. So escrow is a form of insurance whereby the source code is deposited with an independent neutral third party and available to the customer under very specific what are called release conditions. Um, so again, if the, if the publisher goes out of business, declares bankruptcy, uh, refuses to support, um, the customer has that mechanism under a separate three-party agreement to uh, file for and obtain the source code such that they can, at least for a period of time, with that source code, uh, support themselves or hire people that would understand the source code, the product, and, and support them. Essentially, that's what it is. What I, I like about source code... Sorry? So I, I was going to say, I, th I think there's a whole new sort of era of that to come with the cloud because um, mm. I, I was reading something the other day. They said um, this couple had gone to Europe or something on a traveling trip and they'd shared all these photos online on this online photo sharing service. And their parents, the, the mother of one of the couple, um, printed out one of the pictures. And to cut a long story short, the, the photo sharing service disappeared. And mm -hmm. with all their photos, yes. and the only the only thing left was this printout, <laughs> which you think at the time they thought, oh, that's quaint. She's printed it out, you know. Uh, but actually, that was the only evidence left because the, the cloud system went up in, in smoke. And sure. um, there's a well, whole actually, new there's a whole new set of challenges ahead when those sort of services disappear. Well, and that's a very good point. And DSI was bought by Iron Mountain, as you may know. And Iron Mountain has actually introduced some new escrow-type um, services um, along that line or to address that, that need in the market, as well as even before, I think they call it e-diligence or e-discovery. So in a legal dispute where uh, there needs to be discovery of all the documentation uh, or to an, in anticipation of that possibility, that you would file certain documentation with Iron Mountain now um, to be available again under specific conditions. Right. What I like about escrow from a SAM perspective, and again, it's a very small like niche, but it gives customers, can give customers some leverage in the relationship when something goes wrong, when the customer generally has very little leverage as to software that they've been running for some period of time. So I've had situations where a prob problem, a conflict has arisen, and you check the uh, escrow agreement, and oh, by the way, this is one of the release conditions. So in filing for release of the source code, which is the publisher's crown jewels, they do not want that out, um, given out to a customer. Uh, it escalates the situation, and more often than not, I think the statistic was 75% of the time, the conflict gets resolved rather than the publisher releasing the source code. So it is a very, can be a very effective form of leverage. So what, what have you seen um, in, I, th I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and you said 
it says 20, 24 years you've been doing this company. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what have you seen in that time? That, that's an, an immense change in this industry, isn't it? It is in some respects, um, but ITAM and, and SAM is you know, where I spend most of my time. Fundamentally, hasn't changed in terms of you know, framework, that the components of the program, best practices. Um, it, what's changed is the scope in terms of other platforms, uh, including, you know, most recently, the cloud, uh, Internet of Things. So the, the platforms have changed, the complexity and the magnitude of the classes and the assets, that's changed. Also, again, um, partly due to the cloud, we're dealing with a greater magnitude and complexity um, as to the vendors of suppliers of services and the contracts. And we, it's complex for a number of reasons, including the fact that when a customer uh, contracts with a cloud service provider, as an example, they don't necessarily know who's behind all the components of the services that that primary CSP is providing. So there are other players, if you will, and related risks that again raise the complexity and the magnitude of the the management challenge um, to a much higher level. And in a nutshell, what what do you typically do for a company if, if they were to engage with you? What what's your, what what does the company offer? Yeah, there are two parts to the, my business. One is management consulting, where as with any management consultant, I would go in and do an assessment, um, identify um, strengths and weaknesses. Um, put together recommendations and uh, for a roadmap, a plan to implement an ITAM program, and then work with them to develop and implement that. And and a lot of what I do is mentoring, um, knowledge transfer, which leads me to my second part of the business, which is education. I have a couple of courses of my own, and I also um, give courses on behalf of uh, another organization. So, so the two parts, management consulting and education. And for, for the uninitiated, what is the difference between a consultant and a management consultant? And, and also, you might throw a contractor into the mix. Yes. So maybe a contractor is maybe a doing more of the doing, maybe? Yes. Whereas a contract is more brought in specifically for maybe advisory. What, what, what's your view of those three job type, those three sort of descriptions? Well, I think you're exactly right in terms of a contractor. They're more of a doer. And for a period of time, generally are often supplementing the, uh, the client's resources. Um, consultant, there are different types of consultants. Uh, technical consultant is just that, someone who's very uh, technical and can you know, design, um, develop, program, uh, configure um, technology. That's not me. Um, management consultant is more strategic directional uh, and and deals not just with the technology that's certainly part of any any strategy but all of the other aspects the people um, policies roles and accountabilities the organizational structure all of these other things that have to be in place um, beyond the technology and and typically with a longer term um, viewpoint and it is more advisory than doing Right, and and it it would be um 
It'd be great if we could cover your networking group in Canada as well. Could you tell us a bit about that before we move on? Absolutely. Um, well, it's the Canadian ITAM Users Group. We were founded in 1992, so that's 27 years ago. And as far as I know, we were an industry first. And at that time, we were the Canadian Software Asset Management Users Group. And I founded it while I was with uh, Gartner Canada uh, because a major software publisher at that time, there were, there were issues in their relationships with customers and customers were very concerned about that particular publisher and uh, certain risks that they felt that publisher's uh, actions introduced to their environments. So I had a, took a number of calls as a Gartner consultant slash anal analyst, and uh, that resulted in our first meeting, which was very specific to this publisher. We had about 45 people at that first meeting. And uh, we've just continued since then. Uh, we meet three times a year in Toronto, and then, yes, there is a LinkedIn group as well. It's for practitioners only although we do have solution providers and publishers in as guest speakers. Um, and, you know, again, for me, it's important that we share our knowledge and what we've learned and then where we have an opportunity or a need that we have a collective voice. So one of the things that we, we do in this users group is where, you know, for example, a publisher comes in and they're changing their licensing program. Uh, if, if the participants in the users group have issues with that, if there is, is impact to their organization, we will actually document that uh, as a follow-on and say these, these are the concerns that we as representatives of these major organizations, um, these are the concerns that we have and, and if we can, here are some recommendations and really try to um, inform the industry, particularly the publishers, and affect some change where possible. Very cool. And, and, and could I, I must ask you as well, is are you doing this for 24 years? Um, you, I'm sure you've seen, like a, you've had a roller coaster of experiences through that time in terms of running it as a business. If there's anyone out there that's, that's thinking about doing a similar sort of thing, what, what advice would you give to them about being a management consultant? That's, that's an interesting question. Two things come to mind. When I was with Gartner, what I learned there was the business of being a management consultant, not, not the subject matter. I already knew the subject matter, but the business of being a management consultant. So how to um, you know, look for business opportunities, how to engage with a prospective client, how to respond to an RFP, um, project management, all of those things that, again, to me, are the business of management consulting. And the importance, of course, of relationships uh, at different levels in the organization and, and, and fostering those relationships, recognizing that they are different with different individuals and at different levels. So that would be one observation um, or uh, recommendation I would make. And then the other is know your subject matter. Um, people know when, when you don't really know what you're talking about. So for me, I had the, the benefit of having practical experience. I was a SAM practitioner uh, for, you know, 
five years or more. And that was invaluable experience. I knew what I was talking about. So those would be the two things that come to mind in terms of... Of those two, the first yes. one, the first one's going to be the biggest challenge for most people because they they want to be a management consultant because they've done it a few times and they want to go and advise other companies. But um, you know, just because you know how to bake a cake doesn't make you a cake shop owner. Sure. Um, so how did you pick up that experience? I mean, it, it was from Gartner, but what specifically did you learn about how to how how can you pick up that sort of skill in terms of identifying opportunities and working opportunities? Well, at that time, Gartner had a salesperson for the consulting side of the business uh, here in Canada. And so that, that was helpful. And, you know, sales is not my strength necessarily or even where I really want to spend a lot of time, frankly. So um, I learned from that individual uh, and it didn't take long, I have to say, um, and it was just, a, I think, a, a number of things coming together that people knew of me and my expertise. And I really didn't, certainly when I started my company, I really didn't have to do much marketing or sales uh, to this day, but including at the beginning. As you know, Martin, I am one of two Canadian delegates to ISO's WG21, Working Group 21, which is the what was the SAM standard, 19770, family of standards, and uh, it was uh, rebranded a couple of years ago now to be IT asset management. And what's your, for those that might be interested in Canada or elsewhere, what's your role there and how do you get involved? Well, you have to go through your, because um, uh, I've just forgotten the term, the national uh, body, which in Canada is the um, Standards Council of Canada, and uh, apply and uh, I'm not sure, I don't remember actually all the particulars other than there is an application process. And then I think you have to be accepted by the particular group that you want to participate in, the convener for that group at that time. And as you know, uh, WG21 has a number of uh, different standards, um, and study groups. So we have the opportunity as delegates to participate in those that where we have the most to offer and of course subject to whatever our time constraints may be. So I'm involved in several of them. My counterpart, um, he's very technical. I am not technical. I really look at, at it from a business perspective and particularly how the standards affect the customer organization, um, whether it's you know, a positive or potentially uh, negative impact. So I'm very focused on, on that as these standards are proposed uh, and developed. And then again, my counterpart, he's right into the technical details. Is this, is this standard, these specs, do they work or not? So it's a good partnership. And I'd, I'd say um, anyone that's interested, I, anyone that's interested in the mechanics of ITAM or, or just networking, I'd, I'd recommend looking at it. I mean, it, it's voluntary work, so that it, mm-hmm. so it tends to work at a glacial pace, um, but it's interesting and it's and it's you know gets to meet people and it's it's good. It is good. It's it's been interesting for me. It's it's um, I've learned from it. I think I've contributed uh, again, particularly 
from an end user organization perspective because as it happens in WG21, I don't know about ISO generally, but WG21 is comprised largely of solution providers and publishers. So, you know, we have to, we have to work hard to make sure that we are considering the end user organization side of things. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned about the, the sort of convergence of um, ITAM and security and the relevance there. Um, and we were talking before the podcast about the difference between asset tracking and asset management. Can you expand upon that, upon your views there? Why is ITAM more than IT asset tracking? Well, asset tracking is, um, in very simple terms, uh, having an inventory of what you have and where it is and the ability to identify it. Um, and that is accomplished in large part through inventory discovery tools, um, not completely, but uh, to a large extent. So what do we have? Make, you know, identify it. Make model serial number, publisher, version, release, etc. Where is it? Um, and, and that's essentially tracking. It, it really is more... A, a physical view of the assets, largely in support of IT functions such as the service desk, uh, architecture and planning, support. Asset management goes beyond the physical aspects of the assets and considers additionally the fiscal, the financial, and the contractual aspects of those assets. Uh, and in support of a broader um, group, if you will, beyond the IT uh, organization. So asset management with the information that we're interested in, uh, you know, it serves the, the contract folks, procurement, um, the uh, financial folks, uh, and others, legal uh, potentially, can benefit from and also provide some of the, the data that we need, but also benefit from ITAM. So fundamentally, it's the difference between the physical and the fiscal um, aspects of the asset portfolios. And when you're, when you're engaging, you're doing your management consulting and you're going in to advise companies, typically what stage are they at? What, what, what are, you, are you coming up? Are you being asked to come in to help develop a business plan or to help advise, fix things, or how do you typically go in? Typically to do an assessment um, based uh, of their current practices. And their current practices may be quite um, dispersed, meaning they don't have an ITAM program or function and dedicated people, but they are doing some ITAM, or it may just be IT asset tracking um, activities within the organization. So, again, an assessment of their current practices, whatever and wherever those may be, and then from there, identifying the gaps and making recommendations. And as you know, moving forward, it's a multi-phase, multi-year initiative um, that, that increases in maturity um, as, you, as you go through those phases. But presumably, they've got sufficient pain um, yeah. to want to call you in the first place what what's the, typically what is that pain that they're suffering um, in recent years and in, in probably the last five plus years it's it's been license compliance 
that they've had an audit or multiple audits more likely. They've had to put out a lot of money that was not budgeted. It's been an embarrassment within their organization to their you know, CXO and even to the board of directors. And you know, the, the, the dictate or mandate has come down that this will not happen again. So, and that coupled with, not necessarily coupled with, it could be um, separate from, is an internal audit report. Right. Which would identify some of the same um, weaknesses, if you will, exposures. Although I, I have been disappointed over the years at how little internal audit in many organizations looks at license compliance in particular and some of the other things that, that ITAM is concerned with from a risk perspective. The internal audit really has not, in a lot of organizations, um, been on top of that. And what are you seeing in Canada from an auditing perspective? I mean, my view um, is that maybe they've current auditing is is not gone away by any means, but it's the intensity has perhaps peaked. You've seen the likes of Microsoft taking their foot off the pedal a little bit in yes. terms of reviews, and that might be a cyclical thing. They might be back with a vengeance next year or something. But at the moment. Um, what, what's your view? What, what's your view of things? No, I would agree with you that it has um, stabilized, leveled off somewhat, and there are different reasons for that, including the you know moving customers to the cloud. Um, and we we certainly see audits in Canada, no question, and not as many as in the U.S. Um, certainly, our our environments, our, our IT asset portfolios are just smaller. So there isn't the same revenue opportunity to a publisher in doing an audit of a Canadian organization versus US. Right. However, we do see them. I think they're very similar to what you see in the US and, and probably uh, in the UK as well. Um, I do see more customers challenging uh, the publisher's request or demand for an audit and challenging the results of the audit. And I think that's a good thing. A very good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really pleased to see that. And we've talked about that several times in the Canadian ITAM users group. In fact, we always have a practitioner uh, presentation. And one of them was on that very subject where this customer organization had very successfully challenged a publisher. Um, with their based on their data and were able to avoid you know significant um, fees and just as an aside you know I tell clients it's one thing to to, to know that you can get um, licensed data from your publisher or your reseller but customers really need to keep their own data I think there's this there's this perception that because the representative presenting the data is wearing a suit and they're coming from a big fraud audit firm or a software company, the data must be right. Yes. And you need to have the confidence to say, actually, I want to scrutinize this and check it because um, invariably it's, it's, it's not basically. Right. So the customers need to be scrutinizing the data that's coming from, you know, the reseller, the publisher, the auditor, but also ideally have data of their own. Right. 
So you're um, engaging with a customer and they, let's say that they've had a practice before and maybe it hasn't gone as well as they'd hoped. Maybe they've got their fingers burnt. What's the typical point of failure for an ITAM practice from, from your perspective? Not enough people, so resources. Uh, also, they don't have um, or dedicated resources either. And the expectation that the program will be developed and implemented as part of your day job, as opposed to uh, standing up a project for at least to get to at least get started and for some of the more complex uh, components of the program. So you've got those additional resources um, in project mode versus you know part of my operational day job. Uh, another challenge is that to the extent the ITAM function exists in some form, it is not in the right place in the organization. ITAM, and I'm using IT asset management here versus tracking, ITAM is a business discipline and properly belongs in a business function within, generally within IT, sometimes finance, as opposed to being in a technical or operational function. So that, that's a problem. It needs to be elevated uh, within the organization. So those are two um, in particular. Uh, there's too much t uh, focus on technology. I mean, that's a common problem, uh, that it's going to be a silver bullet, and we know that's not the case. And not enough focus on the data. When I work with clients, before we even talk about the technology, we have discussions and uh, analysis on their data requirements. I don't care as much what the product is, um, as long as it can capture and report on the data that the client needs. So we really need to focus on the data requirements first and foremost. And what what do you mean by data requirements exactly? What what's, could you explain? So what, what data do we need to capture about the assets? Right. And, and what are the existing data sources? Um, what's the quality of any existing data? So, but it's not just about the assets. Again, speaking of ITAM, you need license data, contract data, financial data, vendor data. Um, you even get into ta taxation issues. Not that we are tax experts, but there are some considerations from a taxation perspective. Um, so we need to understand our requirements for the types of data, those different categories that I've just uh, identified, Within each, what specific data elements do we need? And again, uh, do we have those? Do they exist somewhere? If they don't, where are we going to get them? And as we move to a technology solution as part of our program to make sure that those data requirements can be met either by that solution or if the data exists in other systems, the systems of record, ideally, that, that that data can be uh, integrated, uh, perhaps imported into our technology solution. And final question for you, Sherry, is if you're speaking to uh, an organization and they're looking to put a business plan to secure some funding for all of this, so they need some, they need a team, they need some help with process and they need some technology perhaps, um, 
how do you advise going about starting that process? Well, I think they have to look at what they're spending on their IT assets, perhaps by different classes or portfolios, and particularly software. How much are they spending? What are they spending it on? So is it license, licenses, license upgrades, maintenance, uh, break it down, uh, perhaps even by platform, different ways. And there will also be some situations almost guaranteed where they've had to put out money that was not budgeted, planned, because there have been um, gaps, if you will, from an ITAM perspective. They, not, they, they may not recognize it as ITAM, but that's effectively what it is. So we look at, at those expenditures. We look at those past situations, as an example, an audit where they've had to spend, uh, pay money, and apply some rules of thumb. Um, you know, Gartner says 30% potential savings. You know, my, my approach is let's take half of that, even just 10%, apply it to not all of the portfolio, but parts of the portfolio that would be eligible. In most organizations, that's still a big number. And it's big enough to get them started. And then as they start to implement ITAM or some parts of it, that they will have successes almost guaranteed, save money, provide other benefits that can be used then to build on that business case and get more resources and more investment. I do want to mention just briefly, um, one of the challenges I find is definitional. And that has to do with the difference between SAM versus its subsets Software License Compliance, SLC, and Software License Management, SLM. Um, license SLC, by, as the name would suggest, we're focused on compliance and ensuring that we're not under-licensed. And that's important. We need to do that. With SLM, we're additionally focused on being right-licensed. Do we have the right type of license? Um, are we optimized in the licenses that we have and how we've deployed our software from a license perspective? SAM goes beyond that, beyond the license considerations to the actual assets, the products and services, and is concerned about, do we have the right products and services? Are they providing value commensurate with what we spend? Do we have a roadmap? Um, do we potentially have functional, functionally redundant products? Are we supporting multiple versions? Some of these questions are more about the product than the licensing. And I mention it because there is confusion, I think, in the marketplace as to solutions and, and what bucket they fit in. And then confusion within the end user organizations as to their program. You know, I see too often I'll talk to an organization and they'll say, well, we've done SAM. And really what they've done is they've implemented software license compliance for one or more publishers, which is a good thing, but there's more potential, more value from SAM, as I've described it, than SLC. I mean, one, just to illustrate your point, you, to do license compliance, what you can do is simply overspend, isn't it? And that's compliance sorted. You know, if you, if you get a blanket agreement for everything, uh, which some companies do out of you know f uh, fear of fear of non-compliance, um, then you've solved the compliance issue. 
but you haven't optimized, you haven't got the full potential of Sam, have you? Exactly, exactly. Good, good example. So Sherry, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Uh, I feel like I could, we could go on for another couple of hours on this because you've got such uh, immense ex- practical experience of this. So thank you very much for sharing your time. And, My pleasure, um, Martin. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.